0: All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and friends. Um, Today we'll be talking to Matt Carp, or as I'm, we'll continue to joke Matt Trout, Matt Mm -hmm. Salmon, Matt Mahi Mahi, Matt Tuna, Matt uh, Bluefish, Matt Guppy. I'm just gonna keep going. Impressive,
1: (laughs) impressive list of fish that you've got there. I know, right off the top of the head. Keep
0: going. I'm a fish man. What can I say? Anyway, Matt, sorry, I'm just having fun here. But anyway, he's a great writer uh, for Jacobin and he's a professor. We should
1: take these jokes fine.
0: Yes, and we'll probably be uh, debating a little bit about, uh, you know, the Democrats versus Republicans, the uh, midterm election, and then also the elections coming up and, you know, uh, what we can ascertain from previous elections and yeah. stuff like that.
1: And if people enjoy these debates, what should they What should they do? How, well, should, they, how should they get them right away?
0: Why, thank you for asking, Crystal. Allow <laughs> me to answer that question very seriously, like a serious man that I am. Uh, no, for real, though, if you guys want to support the, the show, you could always go on Substack, links in the video description box below. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every show, and which is usually a debate or an interview, and you get it a day early. And even if you don't want to pay the $5, that's totally cool. Go to Substack anyway, and you could sign up for free. And then you get the audio version of the show as a podcast a day later, usually on Saturdays. And it will be emailed directly to you the second it comes out, so you know right away. And remember, guys, we never have a conversation with any advertisers. We've never done any ad reads. We really want to build this through small-dollar donations, ground up. So we deeply, deeply appreciate your support if you'd like to support us. And, yeah, that's pretty much that, that's, that's the whole gist right yeah. there.
1: So I've got an amazing Fox News moment that I want to share with you. Me. So um, I'm, I'm almost impressed with like the audacity of what they do here. They have gone through several phases in their Republican presidential primary approach. So Rupert Murdoch decided he wanted to back Ron DeSantis, told him that uh, even before the 2020 election. So this was like the plan in the works. Ron DeSantis was the rising guy. They did everything they could to pump him up. That's not really working out for them. So they've got to figure out who else they can try to puff up and give another go at it because they at the top top levels don't really want Trump but at the same time they recognize like Trump has a hold on the base so they're still trying to you know do what they can to support him as well so it's created just like a sort of chaotic disastrous situation and into this mix they decided that they would make up out of whole cloth their own quote unquote power ranking INSIDE OF THE REPUBLICAN presidential PRIMARY, WHICH ARE BASED ON BASICALLY NOTHING. LET'S TAKE A listen AT HOW THAT WENT. OUR POWER RANKING SHOW, FORMER PRESIDENT TRUMP KEEPING A FIRM GRIP ON THE PARTY. SO
2: HERE'S WHAT WE
0: HAVE, DANA. HE IS FAR AND AWAY THE FRONT RUNNER. RON DESANTIS, TIM SCOTT ARE IN CONTENTION.
2: Uh, YOU'VE GOT FIVE OTHERS IN THE CONVERSATION, AND THE REST ARE ON THE OUTSIDE LOOKING IN.
0: Hi, Dana and Bill. That's right. Feeling right at home here in Iowa. We can tell you that this morning, Senator Tim Scott breaking into the top three in those Fox News power rankings that were just released. We caught up with him here on the fairgrounds, asked him why he thinks he's moving up in these polls. He said it's because of his common sense conservative policies. Listen, do you think you are going to be able to move up in those rankings?
1: Well, the good news is we're we continue to move up. More importantly, I'm not spending any time watching polls. I'm spending all my time watching people. So polls don't vote, but people do. So I'm going to spend my time getting to know the average person in the state even better. And so far, so good. I expect that our momentum will continue to increase every day. So amazingly, they just totally decide they want to prop up Tim Scott here and go all in. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I was sleeping
0: because Tim Scott was talking. No, it is amazing how shamelessly made up that is. It's
1: so incredible. I love how he's like, oh, I'm not even watching the polls. It's like, well, good, because this had nothing to do with the polls, actually. It, <laughs> it's just completely invented. And they
0: treated like it was like breaking news or something. <laughs> like, like, breaking can- news, Tim Scott has gotten into the top three of the list we just utterly made up. <laughs> Because he's still, and you looked at the polls right after you saw this the first time. 2.6%. He's at (laughs) 2.6%. And it's not, And let's be clear, it's not like he's one of those candidates where it's like, but when you go to the particular states, he's doing better in the early states. That's not true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, clearly they hate Vivek because he's the person who's actually moving into potentially second position. Like if you were going to do a real the only thing that you could really base this on is the polls, which they just decided to discard and put forward what their you know fantasy world is. So very naked here that they are giving Tim Scott a go, that they're putting out a little trial balloon to see if this can catch on.
0: So if you're going to do a power rankings, yeah, you should at least do it by the polls or mostly informed by the polls with right. like a little more of your take on it, but mostly the polls? Yeah, I mean,
1: you could come up with, you could maybe throw in like, and weigh in endorsements and weigh in fundraising. Or you could come up with yeah, some other factor. Yeah, you could come up with a
0: thing other than just making it up completely. But this is
1: literally just, nah, this is what we, we're feeling today.
0: So the only people that they should have put, if they were going to put that, like, whatever the tier is underneath Trump Cont- dominating contenders. by a million contenders. Yeah. Okay. You could only put in that one, if you're going by, like, empirical stuff. Yeah. Yes, DeSantis, even though he's dropped a lot, he's still hanging in there in yeah. terms of being mostly second in most polls. Vivek, like you said, who has seen a genuine surge and in some polls has, has even surpassed DeSantis. And honestly, in the early states, Chris Christie, because Chris Christie surged to second place in uh, New Hampshire, it was. And so nationally, he's not doing as well. He's at like three percent or four percent or something like that. But in those early states with those northeastern Republicans who are yeah. anti-Trump, he's actually surged in the second place. But they would never put him there because, they don't, you know, they don't want him. Right. And like you said, for whatever, I don't know why, but they don't like the And so they, they put Tim Scott, who's like one of the most boring candidates with zero hope. I mean, it's just embarrassing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I, I It just shows how uh, powerless, also, and feckless Fox yeah. is at this point. Because there may have been a different time period yes. where if they had done this whole song and dance about Ron DeSantis or now about Tim Scott. It would work. That there would be at least some response. But I don't think anyone is fooling themselves that this is going to really move the polls for Tim Scott. You know what was interesting is when I was at the gym this morning. Um, they had CNN on the TV, and they were doing a uh, Tim Scott puff piece too. No, it, the headline was it was something something very similar to this. It was like Iowa voters take another look at Tim Scott. No, which they, is don't. 100% they don't. hundred percent subjective. Like no. the fact that you found two people who were like, yeah, maybe Tim Scott. So there's some sort of push to try to make Tim Scott a thing that's happening media wide right now. You
0: know, on the Democratic side, the Democrats are receptive to the CNNs and the MSNBCs being like, maybe it's this person, you know? I mean, it worked with Biden. It worked with Hillary, right? But on the Republican side, Fox News did used to control the base. Now the base controls Fox News. Yeah. And even when you get the directive from Rupert Murdoch, like we're moving past Trump, I mean, you saw hints here and there of people being more supportive of of DeSantis or going after Trump a little bit, but still, by and large, it's still 70% Trump ball coddling. And so they're not really in control anymore, to your point. And if this is the best you can muster to like, oh, we're going to get past Trump by bringing in the world's most boring man?
1: Well, you know, the other thing that people float on that side, and there's all kinds of like reports about like, oh, the big donors met, and this is what what they're talking about. They're still thinking about, like, oh, maybe if we got Glenn Youngkin in his sweater vest into the race, maybe he'd be oh the my Trump killer.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Did, uh, Crystal, this is just like 2015, 2016 again. This is exactly what it was. Yeah. So, Jeb Bush is going to be the one. Oh, he failed immediately. Oh, maybe Marco Rubio. He'll be the one. Maybe mm-hmm. John Kasich for two and a half seconds. They just went, do, do,
1: do, do, do. Oh, oh, Trump went, oh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, the reality is, if you're going to do the power rankings, there's Trump and then there's everybody else. That's the truth of the matter. That's,
0: that's factual. All right. So, um... Here's something that's been floating around online recently uh, for the past couple days. I've been seeing this all over my Twitter feed and conversations breaking out. Um, Men's issues has now now become like this big, hot topic of debate. Yes. And um, so I just want to read this one poll that I found on this. 65% of men say that, quote, no one really knows me. And this is on top of, you know, the the depression rate going up. They're feeling social anxiety. And, uh, you know, among the deaths of despair, as we call it, yeah. they're uh, you know, they're higher among men. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because there's this reaction from the left where it's sort of like dismissive of men's problem in a sense. Yeah. Or it's almost like, you know, you had to come in or, or whatever. There's like a, a tone of, why are we even talking about this kind of coming from them? But I do also see sort of a mirror image thing happening on the right where, um, in a sense, it is kind of like coddling them a little bit. And so I'm curious what you think about it, because I actually have some pretty strong thoughts on it.
1: So here's what I would say first and foremost. I mean, I think the issues are real and genuine and also not surprising if you look at you know the state of neoliberalism that we're in, because what is society's message overwhelming, and this isn't just in like modern America, but going back through much of human history, the role of the man is like to provide and be the breadwinner. And then systematically, we've sort of stripped the ability of anyone, men or anyone else, to be able to fulfill that role. And so, yeah, it leaves a real void. And then the other piece that I would say is, you know, in liberal progressive identity-based politics, there's an analysis for why any other Historically oppressed minority group may be doing poorly in the economy, right? They're, you know, if you've been, if you're a Black American, we understand why there might be a struggle. If you're a woman, we understand why there might be a struggle. If you're LGBTQ+, we understand why there might be a struggle. But so, if your whole lens is through this filter of identity and there's no other like class or more structural analysis, then you look at white cis men and you're like, well, if you're struggling, it must just be your fault. And so you get a lot of this energy coming from liberals in particular of like, oh, boohoo, men have it so hard, like, you know, screw you, basically, or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or the problem must reside with you versus any large structural problem. So I do think that that is a real issue that comes from liberals and some quarters of the left. Now, do I think the right contains any answers um, for this group of individuals that is struggling? No, I don't. And um, do I think that it is a little ironic that there's almost like, you know, a, a, the same people who would be totally dismissive of any women's focused or women's centric concerns? are suddenly very interested in men-focused, men-specific concerns. Yeah, I think that's ironic. But I do think that there is a real problem there that needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, so I would say, to be fair to people on the left who seem dismissive on this problem, I do think more what they're reacting to is the rise of the Andrew Tates and the Jordan Petersons and the manosphere. Sure. Where all the answers are, like, legitimately terrible non-answers. Like, we'll just go back to being what a man in, like, the 1950 was. Yeah, or it's a 0 sum
1: game where it's, like, a gender war. Where it's, like, oh, if men are doing bad, it's because the— it's because of the bitches, basically. Yeah, like, it's the it's women's like,
0: fault. Well, embrace toxic masculinity, uh, basically. And, you know, uh, you need to be the authority figure and you need to be the earner. And there is an element of, like, I'm going to give you a kick in the butt so that you get your stuff together. But also at the same time, like you said, sort of blame women. And it's all, it all comes down to that individual, like, we're going to look at this from an individual level. Right. And I think in some ways, that's why the right has attracted, uh, like, young boys more is because on the right... They do sort of take their problems down to the individual level. So you feel like, oh, I have more control of this than, uh, you know, it feels more empowering. Right. It feels more empowering. Yeah. Right? Whereas on the left, if somebody on the left is talking to men or about men or boys or whatever, the idea is like, hey, there's all these big structural economic things that right. we need to fix in order for you to sort of get on do the okay. right. Get, do okay. And it's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to pass social security Agree. for all by myself? Like, Agree. What are you talking about? Agree. That makes no sense, right? Yes.
1: So, like the thing I just said about like the big structural, that might be accurate. But how helpful is that to you in your individual life, just trying to like get by and do better?
0: So I think we're looking at uh, multiple problems that are impacting uh, men and boys. But honestly, I would even extend this to women as well. I'd extend this to everybody. It's just what people are going through. We do have the big economic issues where people feel like, there is no path laid out for them. There is no track. It is no, after I go to school, then I do this. Then I get that job. Then I get my pension. Then You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's no path anymore. All precarious. So you have these big economic issues. But then I do think you also have, to look beyond that, there's a, a feeling of maladjustment from the era of the internet. You know what I mean? Like people are so plugged in and on social media and in their virtual world that it's harder for people to connect in the real world and build friendships and stuff like that. And that gets back to the poll. I just told you 65% of men say nobody really knows me or whatever. That's really sad. So like, what do I, what would my solution be on this front? I mean, obviously point number one is the more, broader thing, which is like, we obviously have to fix the big economic problems in our country and bring back a sense of community. I think people should have free healthcare and free education. And, you know, I think everybody, UBI checks, social security for all. So people have some economic security and stuff like that. But then once you get to the individual level, and this is probably where uh, I part a little bit from some people in this conversation. Um, I actually do kind of agree with the, like the rhetoric of we're going to get through this like, I'll help you get through this, but like, almost like a little slap in the back of the head and like, get your shit together. Like, I'm gonna help you get your shit together.
1: Well, I mean, some people say that's what they found appealing about Jordan Peterson was the like, make your bed. Yeah. Get your shit together. Kind Wash of. your ass. Make, <laughs> yeah. make your bed. Like, the
0: most basic shit in the world. But since a charismatic guy was saying it wearing a suit, it was like, oh, this is like, it's like this is what your dad's been telling you since you were a kid, but you didn't listen when he said it. But now that this guy's charismatic and he says it. So, in a sense, Like, I do think, the sense I get, at least online, is there is a little bit of, like, a coddling thing going on that I'm not comfortable with.
1: (laughs) You know what I'm saying?
0: Because, here, let me just make this point real quick. Yeah. Like, if there was, uh, if this uh, dialogue was happening around women, women's problems, and we fix women's problems, I do think the reaction from the internet would be like, shut shut up. (laughs) Just shut up. But when it's men and boys, it's like, you know, it's like we want to hear the sob story, and we want to sort of wallow in it. And I'm of the belief, and you might disagree with this one, but, like, if you're sort of making it your identity,
2: mm-hmm. like I'm an
0: oppressed man and I'm in this bad position or whatever, I don't think that's healthy. Yeah, I think what you need is friends or a friend to help you get your shit together and not label yourself as like, oh, woe is me. Oh, poor me. I got all these problems. And so I always say, personally, I actually have, uh, uh, I'm a, I have very conservative instincts personally. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my personal life, I'm very conservative. It's just that my politics are on the left, but like, I will be the one to sort of tell somebody like, we're going to get your shit together and this is how we're going to do it. And it's a step-by-step thing. And there are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take, you know, like, and that, that's something that some people might not like about it. They might think I'm being too, uh, crass or, uh, uncaring or whatever. But I think it, some instances do call for tough love. And this is one of those things. <laughs>
1: I think there's a combination of, like, acknowledging the reality. I think part of what I have found really off-putting about some of the online discourse from liberals and the left around, you know, issues regarding men is just a dismissiveness and a contempt that comes right out of the gates. So I think you have to have an acknowledgement of, like, this is real. It's not made up. It's not because you're like uniquely a shitty person or uniquely bad or that it would be easy for you just to get your shit together. I think you have to start from that place of like empathy and understanding. But within that context, having actual, you know, like don't just wallow in the problems that you're facing, but be able to move forward. I mean, I think that's reasonable advice. Well, the, I, the, The irony is what you just said about sort of like victim mentality. I mean, this is a critique that comes from the right all the time when it has to do with women, when it has to do with racial politics, right? It's always like, oh, if you just fixate on the problems and the discrimination, then you're always going to stay down and you're never going to get ahead. So the irony is that, you know, when it comes to this one certain group, or also when it comes like to christians to christians being persecuted or whatever then suddenly those same concerns about quote unquote wallowing in it or victim mentality are thrown out the window but i mean i just advocate for compassion for people no matter what their station or what they're going through and what their identity is i will say that you know, you said you think a lot of these issues which is true are just human issues you know the overall economic conditions and the struggle to be able to get by or have a family buy a home but these are certainly human issues but I do think that there are uh, unique facets to it that depend on identity. I mean, I think that women tend to be like more objectified and you know judged on looks. And so I think that those issues tend to have a different valence for women. I think men, their value to society, like I said, has typically been being the breadwinner. So there's a different valence that comes when men are struggling to make it in the economy that co- may come with an additional level of shame Um, and sense of worthlessness that may not exist for some women who are struggling with the same thing where the struggle is just whatever the struggle is. What do you think of that? Do you think there's a difference between men's and women's issues and how they should be approached?
0: So I would say uh, in reality, yes, in some minor ways, there are differences between men's issues and women's issues. But even to take it to an extreme here for a second, when you talk about the issue of abortion, yes, that issue more impacts women. Right. But I still just think it's an issue. It's a political issue that we should address. And I don't think men should have to sit
1: no I, I'm I'm thinking, n- no, I have the conversation with I know I've you're not making that, that argument. Yeah.
0: I'm just saying that even in an extreme example, we're like, yes, this definitely affects women more. I still just consider it a political issue. So, in other words, look, the right is typically very against identity politics. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed is it's until it comes to men's issues. Yep. Then all of a sudden, it's like, we're all about identity politics. Yes. If you want to be consistent on this, and I like to think I am, I'm not a fan of identity politics, then that has to apply across the board. So I like as much as possible to talk about these issues as if they're just issues and not, you know, uh, relegate them to just a woman's issue or a man's issue or whatever. And I do think this issue of loneliness does cut across for both, even if it's statistically a little more on, on the men's side. In the same way, I view abortion as just a political issue, not just a women's issue, because I, I care about that, too. And I, you should care. People should care about that issue. I think it's massive restriction on freedom, what a lot of these red states are doing. But I, I'd also make this point. Self-help stuff is good, the only reason it, be- it can become bad is that it-, it purposefully overlooks the economic picture and the systemic issues. Right. Like, I'm in favor of self-help stuff as long as you have it in the proper bucket. Right. If it becomes the whole, like, everything in society is now viewed through put yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, get your right. shit together, then that's just factually wrong because there are some things that you can't do at an individual level. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying?
1: Well, I thought I actually thought you put this really well when you're on the PBD podcast and you were like you can't use the bootstrap thing to cockblock any conversation over the the broader societal and issue issues. That. And that is where it that is where the the right ends up because everything is about the individual, everything is about like your own failings in your own life and doesn't acknowledge like oh there's a reason why this group of people happens to be struggling right now.
0: Yeah, you're right. But having said that, that stuff is also true. In the limited sense of you should do this. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. maximize your individual potential and your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps as much as humanly possible. Don't use like the fact that society has all these ills that we need to address as then an excuse to say, well, why should I even pull myself up by my bootstraps? So I'm gonna run into a brick wall anyway. Right. So you see what I'm saying? It's true, but in a narrow, uh, in a narrower sense. Yeah. And then the the final point I'd make is just. There are some people who do have genuine like you pointed out, dismissiveness and contempt for men's issues, mm-hmm. and that's gross, and I don't agree with that, yeah, but what I will also say is sometimes for some people, tough love can look like dismissiveness and contempt mm-hmm. so i I just want to give an example of this because like people look at Jordan Peterson as he's the you know the one who's going after you know trying to help men fix their issues, yeah, um and there was a very famous clip of him being asked by somebody like, you know well, what about a guy who can't get a girl and uh you know to he tries, but he just gets rejected. And Jordan's reaction to that was, "What if she's right? What if the woman is right? She doesn't owe you anything. So maybe you need to go get your own shit together. You need to become more attractive, become more well-read, have better hygiene, you know, learn more confidence, and you know, in in like personal, uh, in your personal life, you're not owed anything. Like you have to earn it." You understand what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. but and so, like, also, I don't
0: think that's contempt. I think that's just good advice. I think that's just tough love, effectively.
1: Those comments from him, though, also come in the context of him having built up a lot of trust with this group. That's right. Where they yeah. feel like, okay, this is a person who has my best interest at heart. So if they're telling me, like, maybe she's right and maybe I just need to get my shit together, it lands in a different way than from, you know— some snotty liberal online who's just basically like, fuck you, go die.
0: I understand that. But my point is some might listen to what I'm saying and say, I'm a snotty liberal who doesn't care. And it's like, dude, I was this man, this boy who needs help. I was that guy. I have nothing but sympathy. But my way of trying to fix that is by like, let's actually fix this. There are no shortcuts. It's going to require work you know, you do have to go back to the individual level and sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps a little bit.
1: I just think you have to include some of that individual piece or else it's so incredibly disempowering. Like you have to give people something they can do and have control over in their own lives or else your thing is just like kind of worthless. Well, this goes
0: back to the thing about the internet. I mean, I would say people, it's easier to just sit at home and go on social media and live your whole day out on the internet. But it's like, no, if you really feel down on yourself, depressed, and nothing's going for you, and you don't have any friends, et cetera, I-, I mean, if I was there coaching the dude, it's like, get up, we're going to the YMCA, we're going to go play some pickup basketball or something, you know? Yeah. And then it's just you, baby steps, and then, you know, next thing you know, you play every Tuesday or something, and then, yeah. next thing you know, you make a friend there after a couple weeks. Yeah. Next thing you know, he invites you to play at another court. Next thing you know, you're over his house playing video games. Next thing you know, you go to a bar with the dude, and then you meet a girl, and you actually have a good rapport, like – this is what life is, you know? It's like you it requires the movement, it requires getting a hobby, it requires like
1: getting out of whatever has been safe. Whatever and funk has been. And I don't want people you. to
0: define themselves by that, thereby holding them back because they're just playing the role of well now I'm the the depressed person or I'm the oppressed person or whatever. Right. You understand what I'm saying? And I would give this advice, men, women, etc. I think it's just a human issue, not just a a, a man's issue. You understand yeah. what I'm
1: saying? Yeah, I do. Well, there you go. All right. We have let's, it. <laughs> let's get to our guest. Um, he just wrote a great piece about some of the what he describes as class D alignment, working class voters uh, shifting some to the Republican Party. Let's get to it. Joining us now we have Matt Karp. He teaches history at Princeton and also is contributing editor at Jack the magazine. Great to see you, sir.
2: Awesome. Good to see you guys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I found the analysis you did of the midterms really, really interesting. The headline is D alignment is real. We can help reverse it. Um, and the subhead is Matt Karp on how political movement beating the drum for working class populism can restore fraying ties between blue collar workers and the left. So you've kind of got like the bad side and the good side. The bad side is that class dealignment is real. There are more working class people of all races moving towards the Republican Party. But you also have some silver linings here of places that buck the trend a little bit. So just take us through a bit of your thesis in this piece.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been banging this drum for a long time. It's kind of like when when the when the Bernie drum broke, um, you know, R.I.P. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of picked up this other instrument about class D alignment. and not just me alone. I think a lot of folks at, at Jacobin and at the the other the other uh, place I'm affiliated, is the, the Center for Working Class Politics, which has um, done a lot of the sort of hard data work on this question, but. Yeah, this what's happening to the Democratic coalition, what's happening to the possibility of a progressive class-based coalition, um, this has been concerning, as, and, and to me it's been the kind of number one story in American politics in the last decade, underneath all of the ebb and flow of, you know, in the political back and forth of um of various elections you know un, you know underneath i think and through the the transition from the trump era from the obama era to the trump era to the biden era this has been the kind of dominant trend uh working class voters that is whether you define it by education uh by income or by occupational class as we've done uh in a really nitty-gritty way with uh the center for working class politics in our recent report you see over and over again uh, voters on the downscale side of those axes moving towards Republicans, um, uh, moving away from Democrats. And you see more and more professional class, upper middle class, high income, well-educated voters moving to the Democrats. So I guess this, this edition of that argument in uh was really focused on the, on the midterms. It was, you know, only about nine months late. You know, we're <laughs> I'm a history professor. Timeliness is not really my thing always. Um <laughs> But I do think it was worth kind of even a little bit laboriously going through the, the details on 2022 because it was pitched in so many ways. And in, in, in some cases, with fairness, as a kind of democratic victory, they beat expectations, they defied history, they held the line. It was the first time in, um, you know, we, with only the 9 11 precedent, it was the only midterm election where the incumbent party didn't get sort of walloped at the polls. Um, and so it was pitched as maybe like you know uh, a, a new day in in Democratic politics post Dobbs and the with the abortion issue and so on. But you look at the data, uh, at least on this particular issue, which I still see to be fundamental and maybe we can talk more philosophically later about why I think it's so important. Um, I think you guys probably agree with me on that, but it, it's worth getting into. Um, but anyway, you see just in the number the level of numbers that, uh the it's the the song remains the same you know even in places where democrats did well uh a la michigan and and minnesota um you had the same movement on both sides a way where working class voters broadly moving towards the republicans and um uh upper class or professional upper middle class voters moving towards uh the democrats so this piece really uh if uh, just to just to you know, kind of take you through it, I guess, a little bit. If that's all right, or I I, I have a tendency to go on and on. No, we're good. Okay, are we good? Okay, all right,
0: thanks. Let me me just interject and then then you can take it over because, you know, this is something we've been hearing for a while. Like, uh, you know, you have uh, lower-income voters, working-class voters moving over to the Republican side, and, you know... The data definitely bears that out. but i I do don't you feel like it sort of misses the bigger picture a little bit because I just, you know, looked it up right now as I was sitting here. Households earning less than fifty thousand dollars a year chose biden fifty four to forty five Now I know we're talking about the midterms, and this is one election prior to that. So, you know, take it for what it's worth here. But it was fifty four to forty five in favor of Biden. And um, higher income households, people earning, it's defined in this poll from the AP as above $50,000. I don't think that's the right line, but we'll just take it for what it is. Uh, 52% chose Trump and 46% chose Biden. So don't you feel like uh, still as a general rule, it is the case that the lower income folks still choose the Democrats, even though there's like whatever the numbers may be. And you can tell me what they are, 5% shift or 10% shift in favor of the Republicans.
2: Yeah, th- 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 actually, that, that's right on point, Kyle, because I was going to kind of try to get into some of the reasons why people are still skeptical of this de thesis, as it were, or, or why some of the sort of counter arguments that, um, I don't know, that I feel like I've bumped into in the last three or four years of banging this drum. And I guess the first one is basically it's not real. The alignment is not, uh, if you actually look at the working class defined by some way that somebody prefers to define it, um, you know, broadly working class voters still choose the Democrats. And to me, this is actually um, uh, and I know you're not actually saying this, but to me, this is the weakest of the three counter arguments, because um, like, as you even suggested, that really broad uh, metric of sort of income category of income under 50,000 for one um, it really misleads what it takes to get by in most of America at this point. Um, it's, it's actually a better, you know, uh, you know, you see Trump did overwhelmingly better in households from 50,000 to a hundred thousand, for instance. Um, and it's, you know, the, the issue at question is you have to be a little bit subtle about understanding class. When we're talking broadly working class voters, you know, the argument isn't about isn't necessarily that um the lowest income voters or the poorest voters. The argument isn't about sort of the poor or even um the sort of the the, the people at the very bottom of the income or class pyramid. We're talking broadly about the bottom half or maybe even the bottom 60-70 percent. And that's where the action is. So one, we have to sort of get understand what um the phenomenon is, and two the real issue is that it's about trend. It's not about the, the, the those polls don't lie in the sense that we're not talking about a country where the Republicans contra what, you know, Marco Rubio would like to believe are the working class party and every, you know, horny handed son of labor, as they used to say, mm-hmm. votes Republican and every, every Democrat is an effete, you know, latte sipper like myself. Um, that's not true. It's divided. That's why we talk about class realignment, not realignment. And so this is, you know i look at this through the lens of history and for the bulk of the 20th century when virtually all of our structural uh, reforms that you know created the even sort of minimal welfare state that we have in the society social security medicare etc were conducted we had a party system that fell along an axis of class alignment. This was the case also in Europe. Virtually everywhere where social democracy has come to pass, you had broadly working-class voters defined whether by education or income or any or occupation, voting for a broadly left-wing or left-center party that did income redistribution, that did structural reform, that basically made these societies more civilized than they'd been before. And that's kind of the only historic way this has ever happened. And what... We've seen in the last basically 50 years in the era of neoliberalism, but then with increasing rapidity and ferocity in the last 10 years is not realignment where suddenly the right wing party is all the working class party, but de-alignment where essentially you have the, the working class divided feverishly evenly in two and polarized on all sorts of issues that prevents any kind of return to a realigned situation where uh, in a sense, workers broadly vote for their material interests. And that's been happening in lots of different ways at lots of different speeds across the country, but it's happened most rapidly and most significantly in the last 10 years. So that even that income statistic, which I think is not the most revealing one, if you look at all sorts of others, you would find even sharper splits. Even that shows a huge come down from where Democrats were not only in the era of FDR, but even in the era of Barack Obama. So, yeah, so- that's part of the argument.
0: So, my uh, two quick questions: Number one, is it your estimation that this trend will continue? And then, number two, uh, don't you think it's more accurate? And you kind of allude to this in the piece too. That isn't it more of just a rural versus city divide? Isn't that like the more the heart of it?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, a couple things. A couple things going on in terms of will it continue? We 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 don't know. I don't think. It, personally i don't feel that it's likely i don't i haven't seen any evidence that it's going to sort of continue indefinitely to the point where yeah the republicans sort of occupy the commanding heights of the working class where you have a, a you know 60 65% of um non college graduates or people making under $100,000 a year or whatever voting republican i think what we're likely to achieve is some kind of what we really have achieved in the last 50 years but it's become even more entrenched Um, in the last 10 is this kind of, you know, entrenchment, this stasis, this gridlock where neither party can, you know, politics are completely unaligned from class. And you know, even if the, the Democrats sort of talk about, you know, are much more willing to sort of do material things for workers in terms of supporting labor uh, labor law, in terms of um, you know, at least teasing the possibility of, of some kinds of redistribution. Um, and Republicans, meanwhile, offer a lot of sort of red meat populist rhetoric for workers. But neither party is really a- actually able to achieve any concrete change in the society. And I think that's broadly where we're at and where we're likely to be. Um, but we can talk more about the prospects for for challenging that order but on the on the rural urban thing yeah it's hugely geographic it's you know as i as i talked about in the piece right like you have it's a it's a two party system but it's really most americans live under one party rule if you're in the upland south if you're in the great plains if you're in a rural county um even in the northeast you're overwhelmingly you, these are places that used to be split 60 40 um, and again on broadly broadly class lines where you had downscale rural voters voting Democrat, you know, in places like Western New York or whatever. And now, you know, it's like these counties have gone to 70, you know, 70, 30, or even like 80, 20 in parts of the South. And so, yeah, it's, it's riven through by, by geography, by race. But I think this trend actually goes deeper than even that, because the the number one shift that we've seen um, in the last 10 years, especially, is a shift in in racial terms, which I think correlates to even some um, urban districts, is a move of sort of non-college educated um, black, Latino, and Asian voters, including some of those in metropolitan areas um, away from the Democrats as well, which shows that this is not just a sort of a phenomenon of the white working class. It's not just about racial polarization. It's actually in some ways about racial depolarization. It's about, um, this new kind of educational or class or in some, some, to some degree income, um, division or like sort of bottleneck, uh, in which the most dramatic movements have been in places like, you know, South Texas, Um, Mm. I guess those are still rural districts, kind of, although I don't know if you, you know, McAllen, Texas is a big city um, and you still see, um, you know, or places like Miami where you still see working class voters, not just Miami Cubans, but, you know, Central American immigrants um, with low incomes and low educations voting Republican.
1: And so what do you attribute this trend to?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a thousand dollar question. I think it's a I think it's a it's it's a historical question. You know, it's not a one off. It's not a oh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, did welfare reform and NAFTA. Boom, that's it. Um, right. That's part of it. But well, it's also it's, not
1: just happening here, too. I mean, it's a bit of an international phenomenon as well. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's happening. I think, and I think there's some some sort of broadly, I, I don't know, historians are, are, are kind of good at hand-waving and dodging on these questions of causation where we say, well, you know, we don't believe in monocausal history. You know, there are mm-hmm. many things. But I think this is one case where you have to look at um, at least a couple really big phenomena, which is deindustrialization, um, the kind of neoliberal crackdown on labor, which happened in different guises. Again, these are all international phenomenon. Phenomena. The rise of I do think a, a, a kind of maybe an understated element to this is the the sort of increasing, in some ways, you know, I don't want it, to. It's a little different from the old, but old Marxists used to call embourgeoisement, where working class voters would like get a TV and stop caring about class struggle. Uh, this is a slight there's a slightly uh, there's a related phenomenon, which is the rise of a really populous middle class that becomes a legitimate basis for the first time in human history after sort of the 1960s for electoral mm. politics. The the bourgeoisie, you know, the kind of off the lap, what we now would call the laptop class or whatever, but, you know, um, clerks and, um, you know, broadly middle class. Um, Professionals and sub professionals and people with sort of technical and sociocultural skills teach. You know, this ranges from, you know, teachers to attorneys and people in law to, you know, I don't know, event coordinators, you know, people who essentially make middle class incomes doing, um, you know, doing middle class work. There's a lot more of them now um, who have educations, who have reasonable incomes, and you can base a political party on that. And I think left of center parties at, at certain bottlenecks of history made conscious choices to appeal to those uh, those voters and have been kind of, we've been kind of on a path dependency from that since then.
1: Yeah, Bill Clinton, you know, sort of overtly decided that the new coalition that they wanted to court was this, you know, more professional, uh, upwardly mobile class. And I guess, you know, from the Democratic Party's perspective, they would say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, this was like the Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer argument that you name check in your piece of, hey, we just bucked the trends. Sure, we lost the House, but we did way better in the midterms than anyone expected us to do. And it was with this exact coalition that you're sort of deriding. So what's the issue?
2: Yeah. Okay. this is amazing. You guys are walking me through all of like these three big arguments, because the first one is against the alignment. The first one is basically it's not real. Uh, Democrats are still the party, of the working class. Just look at these working class voters who vote Democrat. Uh, it's not all Republican all the time. Well, I've talked a little bit about why I think that's not, you know, an adequate account of the case that doesn't factor in these trends and this gridlock and this, um, you know, really palpable movement on the ground in that, that's very vivid. Uh, if you look at, you know, a place like the Iron Range in Minnesota where you have miners who used to vote, you know, 80% for FDR, I'm exaggerating, but and now vote 70% for Trump. Um, anyway, um, uh, but the second big argument is, okay, it is real. Uh, But hey, but actually it's good. It's a good thing. Look at, and the the best argument for this, this argument I think does deserve a response. Uh, You know, you look at, you've seen a lot of, there have been some recent pieces I've noticed about what's happened, say, in Minnesota. I'm, I'm harping on Minnesota today, but I think that um is one of the best examples of Democrat success story in 2022, right? They flipped the state legislature, um they reelected the statewide officials, uh and that legislature has done a lot of sort of pragmatic um you know they have you know new good new labor laws they have um you know a leave policy they have um yeah. you know very incremental interject- stuff but significant, just, yeah. Sorry Power.
0: Let me just interject for one second cuz I actually have that in front of me cuz I've used it in a previous oh, debate great. I had but Minnesota, universal free school meals, legal weed, carbon free electricity by 2040, tax rebates for the working class up to $1,300 for people who make $150,000 a year or less, 12 weeks paid family leave, 12 weeks paid sick leave, they banned conversion therapy, they did reg- red flag laws for guns, they did universal background checks for guns, they did automatic voter registration, free public college for families who make under 80K a year, they banned PFAs, which are the forever chemicals, they did a $2.2 billion increase in K 12 school funding, sectoral bargaining for nursing home workers, and this is all with a one seat majority.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really impressive record. I think, I don't, I don't think we want to sort of throw that baby out with the bathwater in terms of um, what makes sense in some ways for, um, you know, Minnesota state politics in the year 2022, how to sort of get meaningful reforms on the table for, you know, the citizens of that state. So I'm not sitting here, you know, um, uh, I don't want to sort of diminish or belittle that at the same time. I think if you look at Minnesota, I, I think you know, you can't look at Minnesota as a as a as a model state for all of the United States. Minnesota, you know, this is in some sense, ultimate sense, it has to be cherry-picking to say, hey, look at this great stuff in Minnesota, but suddenly Minnesota matters, but a state like Florida doesn't matter. A state like Ohio doesn't matter. States that used to be very broadly democratic, that had broad working class majorities. Uh, or at least competitive, and have now slipped entirely under the sort of the the you know for our for our purposes the dark spell of right wing rule in which those reforms are not only not on the table but utterly impossible in which the the coalition is throttled and blocked and can't move. On Minnesota specifically, I, I would just say, maybe this is, you know, special pleading, but I think it is, I think it's an important feature of Minnesota. You know, it's an unusual Midwestern state, it's an unusual, it's more like Illinois than any other state in that region or most American states. It's, you know, dominated by this giant hyper dominant metro area. Over half the population of Minnesota is broadly Minneapolis, St. Paul, I think it's 3.7 out of 5.7 million. It's it's like Illinois, it's like Chicago. Um, it's not really a roadmap for winning in states where the population is isn't sort of, you know, concentrated in a uh, also an unusually prosperous, um, uh, if you look at the economic numbers, an unusually prosperous, heavily middle class uh, city like Minneapolis, St. Paul. And, you know, so I think that's sort of, you know, you could say, okay, they lost the the Iron Range, they lost Hibbing, Minnesota, they lost, uh, you know, these workers, and they've, they've made up for it by winning all these rich people in Minnesota, in the Minnesota suburbs. But hey, look, they're still doing redistribution. I guess two responses to that. One, I think these laws are great, but I don't know, Kyle, you know, if, if you're skeptical on this, do you think that a coalition like that can actually deliver a really meaningful redistribution of wealth in this country? Do you think that uh, a coalition that is dependent on suburban voters making 250,000 a year for the sl- ultra slim one vote majority can can say enact a Medicare for all or enact even a sort of any policy that really raises the taxation load on those upper-income houses?
0: Well, my theory is that when you do stuff like this, it will now, in turn, attract more working-class voters, and we will be able to go down that path. Because I wanted to ask you, like, doesn't Trump, in his current iteration, sort of throw a wrench into any potential theory that we have here? Because, you know, right now, uh, what I would say happened in the midterms was largely the effect of Roe versus Wade being overturned, Trump-like handpicking these candidates who are so extreme that they deny the results of the election. Uh, And also I would say this explosion of manufacturing jobs that's currently happening in a lot of the swing states. There's been 800,000 manufacturing jobs that are now coming to that region. I mean, my theory of the case is if you materially deliver for people, then they will vote for you. So I guess what I would say is whatever the coalition was to get us to the point where those good things are being done, now that those good things are being done, people are gonna go, okay, now I know who to vote for. So I think the Democrats in Minnesota Will have an even stronger majority in the next election and they'll bring in many, many working class people.
2: I I mean, I hope you're right. I hope that works. I think, I mean, I certainly don't disagree with the the broad theory of the case that you have to do shit to like win shit. And and so, you know, kudos b- to Minnesota for doing shit. And I think, you know, we'll see. I but I I take, I, I think there's a a sort of a, a hidden third variable in the midterm performance that I didn't talk about at length in this piece, but I think I've written about elsewhere, is that you know because of the democratic coalition and if you look at the the sort of the the contours of the victory in places like minnesota and michigan it really wasn't in um you know the sort of old industrial base where democrats won it was it was still really in these extending um the ground in these formerly conservative upper income areas and um, you know, that's the fact that the Democrats have a more middle class, have a more upper middle class base now. I mean, the old truism that like, oh, our base didn't come out to vote in the midterms, the Obama base, even this is like really recent political conventional wisdom that, you know, Obama's reelected in 2012, for instance, and, you know, got a you know pretty big turnout. And then nobody shows up, the young people, the, the sort of working class voters, you know, in the Obama coalition, the kind of rainbow coalition voters don't necessarily show up at the midterms. And you know, a larger portion of that is now the Republicans problem where the Democrats have a lot of these kind of highly informed, high information voters in places like the Minneapolis suburbs who are going to show up and vote. But the overall turnout is um, you know, is still going to be so much larger in a in a presidential election when turnout is now, you know, in the high 60s as opposed to the midterms when we're like at around 50%. So I don't know if I I would actually be skeptical that the Minnesota geography is going to look like um, the, the the way that you project, because so- I think you're going to have a lot more basically down and out in Minnesota's case, largely white voters who, you know, passed up the midterms are broadly disengaged from politics, but can maybe show up to vote, to stick it to the people who they perceive through Trump-like populism to be their kind of political enemies. That is the elites in the cities that sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, the Oliver Anthony voters, right? Mm-hmm. and um, and you know that's a real phenomenon, and I think that uh, I don't know. I'm I'm wary that that's going to happen in 24 because I do think Trump disfigures this because Trump is like a you know he's like pouring gasoline on a fire of dealignment because he you know in his kind of butt headed way he he infuriates the sort of liberal elite so much that. It whatever Democrats want to do, and smart Democrats like who want to sort of who are aware this is an issue, whatever they want to do, like build industrial jobs, they have to contend with this culture war coming from Trump, which is like presses on all their weak points. And I, I listened to your guys' episode with Michael Tracy. I completely agree with you on the impeachment. Uh, I'm sorry on the um, uh, not on the impeachment on the uh, indictment, on in America, yeah. right? But the politics of this. I mean, can we not agree that the politics of this are kind of, as much as it might need to be done, you know, the guy tried to steal an election and disenfranchise millions, but the politics of this are, feed into the worst kind of school-marmy Democrat, you know, you broke the yeah, law. Yeah, I disagree. You I disagree. You don't I do agree? Think that-
0: no, yeah, I do because I just think he's way out over his skis. There's now 91 criminal charges. If you look at polls in this country, shockingly, one of the things that always remains like the most revered institution is like police and law enforcement. So there's this sort of def- default, like, you know, do what you're supposed to do kind of stuff among the American people. And they look at a guy like Trump. And I think we saw hints of this in the midterms as well, with Carrie Lake going down and Doug Mastriano and the loudest uh, Trump defenders and the biggest conspiracy theorists They went down in flames, whereas people like Kemp in Georgia, who was Trump skeptical and refused to overturn the election for him, he ended up winning comfortably as like a standard kind of Republican. So I think people look at Trump now in the general population. Among the Republican base, it's a different story. But among the general population, they go, enough, 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 you've gone too far. And I also think that like the reason why I have that theory of case is... is uh, look at what happened under FDR. I mean, he had 80% of the House, 80% of the Senate. He won the presidential election four times. My theory is when you materially deliver for people, they will you know, reward you for that. I mean, you could even see this early on in Biden's term. When he cut the checks for $1,400, his approval rating was all the way up at 54%. And so having like these jobs be delivered to this area, I guess I'm just more of an optimist on this question. I just think that that will be rewarded in a pretty clear way. Go ahead, Chris. So
1: I... My opinion in terms of the economics is a little bit different in that I don't think that they have done enough. Like you'd look at the polls, most people feel like the economy is shitty, like their economic situation is increasingly precarious because whatever good has been done out of the Inflation Reduction Act is like, you know, gonna take a long time to materialize. And most of the reality of the Biden administration has been them pulling the pandemic era supports that actually helped a lot of people. On the question that you initially asked though, Matt, I also wanna respond to that because I would have agreed with you before the midterms that like, you know, I was one of the people that was like, oh, my God, Democrats like fixating exclusively on January 6th and doing all these hearings and they're not talking about economics and people are saying economics is my number one issue, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, this is going to be a disaster. But it wasn't. And part of a big part of that, probably the biggest part was abortion, you know, that turned out to be highly motivating um, and not just among like, you know, college educated or whatever There's a broadly motivating issue. Um, but also uh, Trump going on about stop the steal was clearly a major, you know, voters hated that. So the fact that you're likely to have an election that doesn't turn on any Joe Biden economic failures or how people are feeling about whether they're going to make it month to month, that's going to be all around this courtroom drama and Trump going out and giving press conferences once again about how we really won. And here's a hundred page report that says that, you know, there was real fraud. Yeah, I think that's a problem for Republicans.
2: Yeah, it's it's true. I think it, we, we we probably, none of us, but I'm just even in real time, just trying to imagine the spectacle of this, like courtroom campaign is it's just totally unprecedented. We don't really yeah. know what it's going to look like, how it's going to play. I think both of you guys make good points about like the limits of Trump's like peculiarly bonkers kind of obsession about this winning and losing business and defying the law. Um, And I think there are limits to that. But so far, I would say just, you know, kind of for the sake of keeping the the argument interesting. If you look at like that New York Times poll, right, um, Mm -hmm. that, that came out somewhat recently that had, you know, Trump and Biden both at like 43% and it had i mean the the dealignment evidence was like a brick in the face of that poll because the reason yeah. why trump and biden were at 43% was the strongest, i mean i was like stunned by this so just to go through with this one particular group which i focus on because it it breaks some of the simplistic narratives of you know of either the deniers or the um the skeptics of dealignment you know to focus on essentially non-white non-college voters if you accept that that's a real problem then you're dealing with something that's larger than just you know arguments about Rick Trump being racist or not and um if you look at that group so just to take take us through the history just to, for the on the numbers so democrats in the obama era won that group and this was probably a bit of a of a, of a, a they were at the, at the crest of a wave under obama um because he did mobilize a lot of um non white voters but um they were winning this group at you know 10 12 years ago by 65 70 points um by 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 2020 in the Biden election, that number was down below 50. So it's a significant drop already. Um, uh, in 2022, it looks like that that number was down to around 30, 35 points. So even in a really good Democratic year, these are two elections where Democrats won. They won in spite of losing, you know, 10, 20, 30 points among working class non-white voters. And then now in the New York Times poll that came out. That number is down to 16 points so we're talking about a something like a 50 point shift in just one decade this is a tidal wave of i think some of it is yes african-american um african-american uh voters kind of you know reaching ultra high levels of democratic support under obama and regressing to like an ordinary number um, Mm -hmm. or returning to a kind of a a baseline but i think you know even the movement especially among black men is larger than that um, and then you look at Latino vote, Latino voters and Asian voters, particularly uh, male voters, non-white, uh, sorry, non-college educated, the numbers are really, really striking. And so you have, and I think the same thing is happening with white voters too, obviously, we kind of all grant that. So I worry that in a demobilized environment, yeah, the Carnival Barker courtroom thing could totally play against Trump and he could actually just get landslided. I think that's a legit possibility. But I think the other possibility is also really true, that we've sort of forgotten collectively how bad it was under him. We hate Mm -hmm. how bad it is now. There's There's another possibility for that key the car impulse that elected Trump for the first time to come back, to screw off you know the 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 rich men north of richmond sorry i'm i'm harping um but th- that that factor can is is a bit of a mystery and there are still more of these working class voters just to come back to numbers again there are just way more of them if they actually show up to vote um and i'm like crystal i'm i'm not convinced that the sort of the ira has moved a significant number of them in comparison to the power of these cultural narratives going against them and the sense of uh larger alienation from the sort of the democratic party so i see more realignment in the in the mix the question is will um will the sort of um you know will the democratic will the will the swing voter base be enough uh sorry will the swing will the sort of um you know, will the core romantics be enough to sort of alienate enough um, middle-of-the-road voters? They probably will, but we don't know.
0: I honestly think one of the lessons from the midterms is that people were not really voting that much based on, I like the Democrats. It was more like, these Republicans are insane, and that's why they're voting for the Democrats, because when you have Roe versus Wade overturn, when you have the election denialism candidates, and I guess I just feel like, The Trump thing is such a huge factor that when the cases actually happen, and I should be clear, I'm hiding my power level here. I think it's more likely than not that Trump is actually in prison by the time the general election rolls around. I actually believe that that's going to be the case. So if that is true, I I think he's got no shot. I mean, I just looked at the polls now, and these are the polls now. This is like way before we get to like the real main event here. But you have Biden plus one. I'm going to go in order here. These are all recent. This is all in uh, August. Biden plus one, Trump plus one, Biden plus one, Biden plus four, Biden plus six, Biden plus six, Biden plus five, Biden plus three, Biden plus one. And again, this is before you get to like the real let's give you the show thing. So I I just feel like mix in the fact that I think normies are feeling like Republicans are absolutely insane with the fact that you also have particularly targeted in, in a lot of these swing states an explosion in manufacturing jobs. I mean, again, there's 800,000 manufacturing jobs that are coming. There's only two states out of 50 that actually net lost manufacturing jobs. Every other state is gaining manufacturing jobs. I think, like, it doesn't take that much material support for people to go, okay, that's good, I'll you know, I'll go vote in this direction. So that's why I feel relatively confident that... uh even a Democrat that doesn't really deliver all that much or semi-delivers or underperforms but still gives some sprinkles of good things, I think in this particular era, because of the extremism of Trump and, and his supporters, I think that's good enough to get the W.
2: Kyle, you're moving me a little bit on this, on this, especially on the Trump 2024 question, because I think the what more I, do, I think bro. about it, you're right that it is it is a bit of a Doug Mastriano effect with him in the courtroom, with him kind of yeah. unable to kind of, you know, as they say, course correct on just I want, I want, I want, you know, like in full child mode. And I think that will basically sort of I think there's a good chance that that will remind voters You know, of the stuff that maybe they would have forgotten if he had just kind of hung out, laid low, showed up Mm -hmm. back again and said, don't you hate Washington? Don't you hate, you know, don't you hate all the politicians? I'm different. I'm going to crack jokes, but it's not going to be like that. So that will help the Democrats. Leaving that aside, maybe, though, because on the well, I don't know. Crystal, were you going to come in? I wasn't sure.
1: No, I think I was probably about to make the same transition as you, because your argument isn't just about can we get the W right? It's also does it matter the coalition that we achieve the W with, and so um, yeah. you know, I'm interested to hear more of your thoughts on that. And I, I have, go ahead and lay out your thoughts on that. And I have a question on that. In that well, regard, yeah, and that.
2: this is this is also sort of in response to Kyle's second point, or just continuing to debate this manufacturing job point. I mean, I think that's great, and I think it's it is a very heartwarming sign that under you know, I'm I'm pretty soft on Joe. Uh, I know a lot of people on the left are are not. But I think on especially on this kind of dealignment question, I think to, to a significant extent, um, the people in that administration are cued to these questions and are trying, um, which is, you know, to some extent more than that than can be said for a lot of people, even in the progressive world, um, who are, you know, indifferent or even contemptuous of them. So I I actually give Biden credit. I give some big chunk of the democratic leadership um organization at this point, whatever you want to call it, credit for for being aware of that. Now it doesn't Extend to the whole entity, and it, and it. Uh, but but I do think that there are these incremental things. That said, I think yeah, it's not from what I've looked at in the in the data. There was nothing in 2022 that suggested that you saw a return of working class support to the Democrats. A return of in traditional industrial areas. Now maybe um, you know uh, you know we could look more closely at, at the counties where some of those jobs were coming in. I didn't do that analysis. But if you look at you know the kind of the classic industrial heartlands. Um, and there are far more of those than there are the places where the trickle of new things are coming. If you look at, you know, Bay County, Michigan, that kind of band up from, um, Detroit running up to the, uh, or running up to the Great Lakes, the kind of old auto, um, and, and auto related industrial, uh, heartland of Michigan. Um, you know you, you know, you, you didn't see movement toward, even Gretchen Whitmer, who won a great campaign, um, who you know, uh, who won Michigan? You saw a movement away from her. You saw working class voters in these industrial areas turning their backs on Democrats. So hmm. and I think without those voters, without some effort to stem the tide in that of of that transition, you're never going to get more than a fifty one percent majority. You don't have a plan. And look, this is to Crystal's point. So if we want collectively, the three of us want real structural reform in the economy, however you want to call it, social democracy, democratic socialism even just a better, badder welfare state, we need bigger majorities than this coalition can deliver. The the current system doesn't have a plan nationally for winning more than 51%. It has no chance at the 55 or 60% we would need, and it can barely even, even running against an insane criminal failure loser, it can barely be confident in winning uh, an election campaign in 2024 with this guy who's facing prison. It's it's That, to me, speaks to the structural weakness of this coalition and its ability to kind of just win, just on the level of raw numbers, win over the voters necessary. That even is leaving aside the question of will the upper class coalition support major reform? I think even on the numerical question, there are just too many of these voters that Democrats are not winning. And something needs to be changed, not just in the policy, but in uh, the politics.
0: Well, I have to ask you this. So... Do you really disagree, then, that in Minnesota, you're not going to see a, a movement of the working class more towards Democrats now? because if you do disagree that that what they did is not going to get working class voters, then i I feel like that undermines our entire thesis of of, you know, materially delivering for people leading to the victories
2: well, i think I think there's too much noise. I think there's too much noise in and and I don't think that state politics, um, y- you know, though highly consequential, In terms of individual people's lives, there are you know hundreds of thousands of people probably that are going to be immediately impacted by those policies. Um, But I don't think that an incremental difference in that one-off—I don't think it works quite like that. I think you would need—I don't think—and I don't think this invalidates the theory, but I think in the sort of short term of the way American politics works right now the nationalization of everything, the polarization of everything, the kind of media dominance of everything, the, the, the divisions that are pressed upon us relentlessly in terms of red and blue and your affiliations and, and sort of no cultural product can come out without being immediately vivisected, again, like this stupid song, can be without being immediately vivisected and partioned off into these corners. So no new information, oh, the Democrats got me this job, even. That information gets... Kind of process through uh, uh, a sort of, uh, you know, a, a vast engine that reroutes it around, yeah, but they are, get, but they're, they're fat cats who are opposed to, um, who are trying to take over my child's education or who are, um, you know, paying off their rich kids, you know, student loans or who are even on the material questions, leaving aside even the kind of culture war stuff who are still somehow my enemy. So I, I don't know just Kyle, like on, on the level of Minnesota. I mean, I would, you know, but if Matt, we, we, you wanted, do, we could make a
1: bet. It would be you fun. You do maybe. point out though, you do yeah. point out Listen, none of this is going to happen. You're not going to flip a switch and like, oh, they gave my kid free lunch at school. That kind of is my theory, though. I think you're going to flip a switch. But hold on. I I mean, it it takes time to rebuild a brand that has become associated with like snobbery and condescension over any number of years. However, you do point to in this piece a number of candidates who actually did reverse the trend of de-alignment in certain significant ways in some of these sort of like old industrial heartland areas and they did it just based on, like, their affect and their messaging without even having actually delivered for anyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and kinda, I guess maybe it's it's really more about adding pieces together rather than, you know, one versus the other. Because, yeah, I agree. Like, yeah. obviously mm-hmm. The Minnesota piece is important. And if Democrats got into power in any state, I would expect they, they need to do the same kind of thing. And, you know, in, in lots of places where they have bigger majorities, they're not doing anything close. Um, but. Yeah, the rhetoric and the politics matter a lot, and uh, you know, or maybe to, to be more precise, they matter a little. But a little matters a lot in a in a fiercely right. divided country like this, and where even just a little bit of pushback can can go a long way. And yeah, the so the, so the Center for Working Progress class politics that i'm a part of has done a couple of like really in-depth surveys where we you know looked at 20,000 working class voters uh one year and another year uh we dove deeper into occupational class and we presented different brands of political rhetoric um to uh these voters ranging from the kind of activist progressive to a kind of you know broad um, you know, economic-focused populist, ranging to a kind of a more centrist, middle ground, let's all get along, um, kind of moderate perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, time and again, we found significant benefits to this populist rhetoric. You know, this is in the laboratory, in effect. Um, but then in 2022, we actually saw a- at a broad scale, not just in a Democratic primary, but in a general election, you saw a couple candidates, and I think the big ones, uh, you know, maybe unfortunately for the branding, Um, within the Democratic Caucus. The the big ones were both these kind of, you know, classic white men. Um, But um, you saw some real significant, you know, benefits to that kind of rhetoric with the Tim Ryan campaign in Ohio and the Fetterman campaign in Pennsylvania. Crystal's written a lot about this. But if you go into the weeds at the county level, at the precinct level, you see that what Ryan was doing in Ohio and what uh, Fetterman was doing in Pennsylvania was actually quite a bit different than what was happening in Minnesota or Michigan, and you see that these populist sort of branded candidates, and maybe it is a little superficial with the with the hoodie. And I know you know some people think that that's you know bullshit or whatever. I I, I don't I don't see it that way. I actually think you know the authenticity shines through that stuff with better. Oh yeah, yeah. But
1: um, uh, but
2: but but it, it is I, I I don't know studying American political history over 200 years. I do think the packaging matters as maybe not as much as the product, but the packaging matters a lot because politics is only understood through um, these kinds of emotive and sort of you know you, you know you have to have bread on the table but you also have to understand where it came from and and who structures the society that produced it. And I think Democrats have come for 50 years and especially in 20 years have moved so far from away from being the put bread on the table party. That um regardless of, you know, oh, I can point to this thing in Hillary Clinton's, you know, you know, website that says they're gonna do all these things, or I can even point to the earn income tax credit, you know, that Bill Clinton did. I mean, you know, Kyle, to some extent your argument could be, and I know this is not what you're saying, but can be caricatured by, you know, this sort of if progressive neoliberals will say that even under the Clinton administration or even under Obama Obama delivered for working-class people Obama expanded Medicaid Clinton did the earned income working earned income tax credit and all those things why didn't that produce working-class votes there's a there's a invisible line somewhere where incremental reforms need to be matched with either need to be large enough to kind of break through the noise or need to be matched with a a whole broader affect that somebody like FDR had, that somebody even like LBJ had about representing the people against the elites that Clinton and Obama never had anything like, actually Clinton had a little bit of it in a funny way. Obama never had anything like it. And Democrats post Obama have really struggled with it. But Ryan and um, Fetterman and a few other candidates uh, at the, uh, in the congressional level, were able to kind of pick this up and run with it. And their differences they made in say rural areas in say, um deindustrializing areas um, it you know 5 10% um but these are to me these are significant because you don't really see that movement almost anywhere else on the map in that direction against these national trends
0: yeah well tim i think tim waltz has that the smiling uh, you know affable old guy who just looks like your grandpa type thing i mean i think he comes with that package and you mix that with what i think is Honestly, in the case of Minnesota, you are moving towards now. This is delivering on social democratic policy. You're no longer in, in the on the field of neoliberalism anymore. I do think that'll pay off. I mean, I, I that I mean that's my theory of change. And I think uh, if he does that and he shows massive margins of victory, maybe you can sort of break the neoliberal spell on the broader Democratic Party and have you know have this sort of spread, this ideology spread.
1: So I have a, a different way I want to come at this um, which is, uh, bear with me. Uh, so I just saw an article that in California, only 16% of the population can afford a home. Okay. 16%. You have to make $208,000 a year to afford to qualify for a like typical 30 year mortgage. And that's if you've got the 20% to put down on the frickin' million dollar home, which who has that in the bank account, right? So another question for me, as I'm looking at States, not just like Minnesota, but also Michigan has done some things, Wisconsin's done some things, Illinois has done a number of like decent things at the state legislative level with these typical like neoliberal Democratic politicians in place. I'm wondering if part of what's going on is that even people who are pretty affluent by most standards are feeling some of that economic anxiety themselves and are feeling, yeah, I mean, COVID sent a lot of people for a loop Um, Housing has never been more unaffordable. Education has never been more unaffordable. So you have that insecurity that we typically associate with the working class really creeping upwards in a lot of ways. And so another, another data point that I uh, would, would gesture at here is the fact that you have support for labor unions reaching you know, historic highs. We've seen all of these labor movements that have been met with overwhelming public support, not just among non-college workers, but also among college-educated workers. Certainly, if you look at young people who have college degrees, they are not feeling economically secure and confident and non-precarious in any way. So I wonder if part of why you're getting some better policies out of these just like standard issue liberal politicians is because that more affluent base that they're very responsive to is themselves feeling rather economically insecure at this point.
2: I think that's absolutely right. I think that's that's the story of Democratic politics in the last, you know, basically it's arguably in some ways, even post 2008, because I think if you're trying to zoom out, Um, You would see Obama as a much softer version of that neoliberalism than, say, in the the DLC of the 1980s and into the 1990s. You know, you saw the movement of that kind of let's deregulate and, you know, free marketize everything, you know, that was happening like a, a fever pitch in the late Clinton years you already saw with, with the, the big crash in, in 08, you saw Obama step away from that. Now there was a huge long legacy that shaped all of the things that he did too. But I think broadly the movement from Obama to Bidenism is in that same vein. And I think it does mm-hmm. reflect a lot of those same, you know sort of structural and class changes uh, in, in the countries where we are more pinched, we are more insecure. Everybody is and therefore more alive to material, um, you know, to material politics, to material appeals. The problem is the Democrats are not, regardless of some things that are happening in some state legislature somewhere, the Democrats are not, have not broadly pivoted to make that, um, to make themselves that, that, that the defining feature of their party. They are still, in my view, trapped in Essentially a war of uh of values and kind of philosophical difference with the Republicans, where yeah. it's it's all in this red and blue matrix, where essentially it's about a kind of uh a morality and ethics, a view of the Republican or anyone associated with that world as lawless, as um, as cruel, as um, as you know, as, you know in many cases racist or sexist or homophobic, as essentially. And in some ways, out of bounds of American politics. And I think the kind of the sort of the moral intensity of some of that, which actually, in fairness, has come from the progressive left, I- as much as anyone, mm-hmm. I think, is still really difficult to it's really difficult to sort of deal with that and also make yourselves the party of economic need when you're also when you're compelled by a kind of a moralism in uh, on questions, you know, broader social and cultural questions. And I'm not sitting here saying, oh, the de- here's, I have this ex-laundry list of politics where the Democrats need to like move to the right on X cultural issue. It's not about that. It's about the holistic sense of what the party is and stands for. And what it stands for right now, I think more broadly in people's guts are, is, um, is not, Doing industrial jobs is not providing health care for Americans, is not making housing cheaper. I mean, the 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 worst housing states of uh, the, the worst housing, you know, um crises are all in blue states, in the bluest parts of blue states. There's no sense in which this party is really committed to economic equality or economic fairness as a as a as a as a broad whole. I mean, that's just not true, despite some legislative, you know, nibbling. It's just that's that's not the case. So and I think gut. At the gut level, voters broadly get that, and so they're not voting on those issues. They're not moving you know, based on, this party is really going to change my life in a meaningful way, and I know it, and I know that that's what they care about, and that's what they're fighting about. I do think people voted for Roosevelt for those reasons. I don't think anyone thinks Biden or even Tim Waltz is going to do that. and. They see them as rather wrapped up in this kind of moral, you know, kind of holy war against the Republicans Mm -hmm. and vice versa, you know, on the other side. And I think until we break that trap, I don't know how we can do it, but I think everything that we do that pushes against that matrix is is, is necessary work to achieve the realignment we want to see that actually changes the country. And everything we do that actually doesn't move in that direction only feeds the beast of this never-ending infinity war.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I would slightly disagree with that, at least in the sense that when you're talking about the Republican politicians, I have no problem at all with the moralizing language and with the pointing out what they're doing objectively and factually, which paints a pretty disturbing picture of who they are and what they stand for. I mean, just following Trump down this rabbit hole after he's charged with 91 criminal charges. I mean, so you got to do that while also finding a way to not malign the, the voters and just run-of-the-mill normal Republicans and find a way to appeal to them while also explaining like, hey, these people are scam artists. But to your point, you have to marry that with like, here's our message on that front. And by the way, here's what we did deliver for you. And more importantly, what we're going to deliver for you if you vote for us. So I think it's sort of you got to try to do all those things at the same time.
2: Great, great point. I totally agree. And I think if anything, they could go harder on Republican politicians, but in a right. different way. You know, know, it's incredible to me how little demonization there has been of Donald Trump for being a rich piece of shit. You know, that just doesn't (laughs) happen. You know, it's just that the fucking, you know, marble toilet, you know, the gilded toilets and the the just absolute (laughs) nonsense, the sort of (laughs) the lobster dinners that he, you know, are, you know, there's just a whole language of evocative populism that that 90 percent of Democrats just leave on the table, including a lot of progressives, just absolutely demonizing this political class. For you know, feasting and fiddling while Rome burns, and yeah. the Republicans are you know go hard, hard on that. But what they tend to do is actually blur the lines where they're not they're they're attacking the Republicans in a moralistic way, but for essentially for having bad values, which are values shared by I don't know 40 percent of the country, give or take, and and extending that disapproval to large swaths of the electorate, or implying that that disapproval extends to anyone who disagrees. And I think that that becomes the most vivid and real and living part of progressive or democratic politics, and that's kind of a doorstopper when it comes to class realignment. So I, I agree, Kyle, that you can, you can, it doesn't mean letting the politicians off the hook, but it means going after them in a way that I think actually Fetterman got closest to doing
1: uh, mm, a couple times. With Oz. you know, yeah. with
2: Oz. that was some of my favorite moments, oh, but I think there's actually, I don't think amazing. that, for instance, Tim Waltz does that. That's a, that's a line of division that we always used to say what separated Bernie from other political progressives who might have the same views on say taxation or whatever, or even on labor is that Bernie would de- would name the enemy and I the think the ruling a lot, class, um,
0: the oligarchs, just, the ruling class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: and mm-hmm. I don't think this brand of kind of you know legislative um, you know reformers, as positive they are, I don't see a growing out of that a naming mm. of the enemy that has the has the capacity for realignment in the way that I felt like Sanders at least struck that chord.
1: Yeah, because um, the right has a very evocative story that they tell about what has gone wrong. And if you're going to ma- meet that or match that with an actually accurate story of what's going wrong, it's not just the legislation. It also takes like selling it and explaining who are the villains. If, you know, if it's not the Mexican immigrants
0: and the trans people. And the trans or, people
1: know. and DEI consultants or whatever. Like who are the villains and what is that side of the story and how does that then connect to a legislative agenda? That that makes a lot of sense to me. My other question is like how much of the scurriness of our politics right now is Trump. Because on the one hand, every presidential election that I've really been cognizant of, you know, they've, Democrats understandably have tried to basically make the Republican into a unique evil. I would say with George W. Bush, it was accurate. With Mitt Romney, it was probably not accurate. With Trump. But with Trump, there is something different about the uh, aberration, like his behavior being different. And it really does strike a chord with the Democratic base that perhaps other uh, Republican contenders you know, don't quite tap into that same level of terror. So how much of the trick that they're able to pull of just being like, the problem is Trump, the problem is Trump, the problem is Trump, we don't have to deliver anything for you, just have to vote against Trump, how much of that is unique to him and will diminish whenever he is off the political stage?
2: I, I have to be hopeful about this because I think a lot of it is unique. And as I was, I think I didn't quite get it out fully earlier. But I think that there are two things that are unique about Trump. There's the there the the buttons he presses, as you say, in the sort of the Democratic base, um, which incline, which sort of awaken all of their kind of most um, kind of morally correct and you know literally prosecutorial instincts, which I think are not always attractive. Although you know it turns out in <laughs> 2020 he went so far over the line that it might not matter. Um, but um, the other thing is what he the way he positioned himself kind of within the Republican coalition and to the country as a large. I mean, you guys know the polls that have showed over and over again that he was perceived as like the most liberal Republican in a long mm-hmm. time. He did not go after Social Security. I mean, we know all this stuff. He did not go after entitlements. He did not, he did the tax cuts, but he did it. He didn't talk about it all the time as like his main thing. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, this is kind of what I would think the Democrats should do on the cultural stuff: is do all the stuff, pass all the bills that, you know, protect all of the people that you want to protect, but talk about, you know, Trump eating lobster and talk about, you know, the economic redistribution that you're going to do, like almost entirely. And then the other stuff you can do, but you don't have to talk about as much. It it is, maybe it's a little too simple, but I think Trump essentially made everything about, I mean, if you remember his closing campaign ads, they were all about the kind of global financial elite um, who were controlling the American economy. Mm -hmm. And it was almost nothing about you know, what he was going to do to, like, liberate the free market. If if we get a return to DeSantis in 28, you know, he's, you know, and he even went after DeSantis, right, from, in effect, the left on, you know, Desantis's votes against Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And if we get a return to kind of traditional Republican economics, I think that might, that in a way would be, you know, a good thing for our project.
0: Yeah, um, I think Trump is more dangerous also for the fact that, um, He does most of the traditional Republican economic stuff, but sometimes he masks it with the veneer of populism where he says, I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to cut Medicare. I'm not going to outsource your jobs. But then, shocker, there was a net outsourcing of 200,000 jobs under him, and he didn't touch Social Security, to be fair. But he also, like you said, did the tax cuts for the wealthy. 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which had returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans, uh, sided with the predatory payday loan industry. I mean, I can go on and on with his horrific economic ideas.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But that's not what he's kind of associated with in the gut for the for American people. I mean, the reason why most people vote against him even aren't for those reasons. Yeah, I that's think true. Because that's right. He's a criminal yeah. Or because he's insane yeah. or because he's a, yeah. you know, a megalomaniac. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: Um, Matt, my last question for you is uh, we alluded earlier to some of the you know, grassroots labor movement organizing the popularity of unions. There's a lot of activity actually in L.A. right now, not just with the actors and writers, but with hotel workers and city workers there. Um, you know, the numbers in terms of labor are still grim. But the fact that you have more militant leadership, UAW, Teamsters, et cetera, and more public support for unions in labor activity. You know, how much hope does that give you and how much does that intersect with the direction of our politics?
2: Hmm. This is a big one to think with, actually, for me, Crystal, because I'm I'm kind of struggling with this right now. I would say mm-hmm. the traditional answer would be everything depends on labor. The traditional answer would be the politics can only be, can only move in tandem with labor, with the labor struggle. And I think I broadly still believe that. And so whatever we want to do electorally, whatever kind of words we want to put in the mouths of Congress people from Ohio or whatever, um, whatever state legislative things we can do to sort of materially change the laws, it all needs to happen. Um, It can only happen if the labor movement is also kind of finding success on its own terms. Now, but I'm increasingly, I just had, I've had a few dark thoughts about this recently, about, you know, given this disproportion that you alluded to right there, and just that question between all this excitement and energy, and maybe I do feel like there's, it's not fraudulent, you know, I think if you took polls, I actually haven't seen this, if you took polls and say, what do Americans think about unions, maybe there have been some of these, and the numbers are up compared to where they were 20 years ago, in a significant way. Massively, Massively. yeah. Yeah. That's right, okay. So that's a real thing. I mean, that feels true to me. But if you, but then- How do you match that with private sector union density just drip, 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 dripping away? And I know the teacher strikes were hugely inspiring. I know some of the major, you know, the Teamsters got a big win. I know, um, you know, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of great reporting about this, but how do we kind of marry those two facts and what can we do, this sort of drip, drip away of, especially in the private sector, you can't do anything in the labor movement until you've organized the private sector. You're not gonna change the country with public sector union. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter, but, you need to make inroads in the heartbeat of the American economy to give labor power. And I don't. I, I kind of became convinced somewhere in the Bernie era, and I just still wrestle with it, that you need a kind of a political Hail Mary to get labor to fight even on the ground where it's not just fighting so far uphill in terms of the laws and the powers available to capital and to bosses, that you know organization continues to be a losing battle. I know people like Jane McAlevey will come in and say, actually, you know, labor can do this and that. And that. So, and I'm not going to say that they're wrong, but I'm really, really conflicted. I I would turn it back to you guys. I don't know. I mean, are you broadly hopeful about where labor can do? I mean, what do you uh, say about this private sector decline? How do we understand that?
0: So, I mean, first of all, the fact that we have any wins on the labor front is amazing because we went decades and decades and decades with no wins, right? And then now you're also seeing... Like I said, the media is sort of reporting on them positively, but then you also have these people like Sean Fain, the head yeah. of the UAW, UAW. who's mm-hmm. scaring the shit out of Jim Cramer every week, which is <laughs> glorious. <laughs> I
1: don't know if you've engaged in any of that content, and Matt, but it's, I haven't it's, seen that. Oh, it's this, this guy! guy. I'll and, send you some clips. You're and the love stuff it. he's
0: calling for is like everything we've ever wanted from a, a union leader, which is he's saying like we want a four-day work week. He's saying we want forty percent increase in our wages. Why? Because that's exactly what the executives got. So we want exactly what they got. And this is just his starting bargaining position. But the fact that you know, you have a labor union now with balls and with some spine that's like fighting for it. I think also coming out of the pandemic, people looked around and said, we got to do something to help ourselves because nobody else coming to help us. And so that's when you started seeing, you know, a lot more uh, labor movement. And so I think over time you can reverse that trend, you know, but I mean, uh, a big thing is, and you've talked about this, Crystal, is on the PRO Act, like, we got to get the pro act through to really uh, revitalize unions in a way that's like, right. you know, Like really reverberates everywhere. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, so it listen, comes back to
2: needing that 55% majority then, you know?
1: Yeah. Kind it of, it yeah. still is an uphill battle. I will say though, I mean, I am optimistic because if you just take what the teamsters were able to win and let's be clear, it's still tentative. they the rank and file voting on it, but you know, it looks like it was a very strong deal. Um, the the UPS drivers, this is like the backbone of the modern delivery focused economy. And now you you got drivers who are going to be ma- able to make like 170k, which is a, a solid wage, healthcare benefits, all that stuff. Now there are a lot of part time drivers, a lot of caveats, but still solid wage. And FedEx, it's not unionized, but they're going to have to compete, or else they're going to be really left in a difficult position in terms of attracting drivers. So even though it's, you know, just technically applies to UPS drivers, you can bet FedEx is going to have to increase wages. And that's the sort of impact unions used to have in terms of the American economy, where it was like everybody benefited from the fact that there was a labor movement, not just people who were in unions. So the fact that you're starting to see hints of that dynamic again is really encouraging to me. And then the the other thing that gives me a lot of hope is the fact that – You know, you do have these more militant approaches from the large unions. And of course, of of course, the grassroots um, efforts at Starbucks and other places are really exciting, too. But we've had decades where every single contract negotiation ends with workers taking it on the chin. So the fact that we've even reversed that at all, where now you have a more aggressive approach, where you have contract negotiations where workers are actually winning and forcing the employers the bosses to take concessions. I haven't seen that in my whole life. So I have to be hopeful about that. I, there
2: is something to that quanti- the qualitative story that's kind of undeniable about the mood. And, and I think you have, I, I think kind of just, there's a bit of the optimism of the will um, kind of element here where, where you, sitting around grousing about the labor statistics in the face of a lot of these trends would be counterproductive. I do wonder, though, about whether this is, in a sense, scalable to create that, you know, the, the sort of virtuous cycle that you um, mm-hmm. you described that did take place in the middle decades of the century. I just still go back to my, you know, why I'm banging this drum, because I don't I don't think that that's really scalable until you get something like the Pro Act, until you yeah, get that
1: could and be. as
2: hard as the fight is politically. I sort of feel like that might be an easier fight ultimately to kind of change labor law in a fundamental way to restart that cycle, then it will be for labor to kind of do it on its own at the, at scale. So, but to get there, you know, to, to you, Kyle, we still need, we need Minnesotas, but we need Ohio too, you know, and we need to make inroads in Florida and Texas that this current coalition has hit a wall on. We need that 55%. We, and I think fundamentally, therefore we need more workers and we need to kind of, you know, we need to put, the sort of all of, in effect, from the left. This is, I'm not speaking as the leader of the DNC, but I think for me, the left's task is to kind of try to facilitate that transformation however it can.
0: Well, I would just, in conclusion, I'd say that, look, Sherrod Brown wins in Ohio, even though Republicans dominate Ohio. And I think it's because he's a Tim Waltz-like character. So I think that if you have... Ohio do the similar stuff to what Minnesota did, then you would see that groundswell go towards um, Democrats. As long as Democrats deliver, people will vote for Democrats. Sprinkle in that Republican insanity and it, it would be nearly a sure thing. But anyway. Yeah. Well, um, the
1: the last thing I wanted to point out is there is a, a cynical hope for Democrats to pass something like the PRO Act, which is that union membership is still one of the most important indicators of Democratic voting. So there's just like a very cynical political incentive for Democrats to increase union numbers. Now, granted, they have been on the opposite side of that for quite a while. But... um you know, there is a, a very clear, like cynical reason for them to go in a decent direction President, with regard to union.
0: President J.B. Pritzker will sign the PRO Act.
2: <laughs> May it be so. May it be so. I love this sunniness from you, Kyle. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like flowing down from your hair into, into your view of the politics. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I got I a lot do. of sunniness up
0: here, a lot of sunniness in my clear my uh, lighter jacket, my pants that <laughs> the don't tans, match. The it's suit. everything. <laughs> and the pants pants
2: thank you guys <laughs>
1: Matt it's great to see you thank you so much and uh, we'll, we'll share your article too so people can check out all the details for themselves
2: I appreciate the conversation really interesting
1: yeah right. of course Take thank care. you brother
0: appreciate it alright that was Matt Carp, or as I like to call him Matt Trout <laughs> Matt Salmon <laughs> Matt Mahi Mahi Listen, you Matt married Cuna a Fish. lady
1: named Crystal Ball so I'm just gonna keep my mouth that's a gangster
0: right. ass name that's like a nice name that's why every time now I'll be like, when somebody asks me something, I don't know, I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, except I do have one. <laughs> and it's always like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> nobody
0: actually laughs, but I'm like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> my mom makes that same joke for what like. does. Hard. She?
0: Yes. That's funny.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I do. Yeah. And people have said, I've said that in videos before too, like. I don't have a crystal ball. And then the comments, people will be like, yes, yes you, you do. do. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but with a K, not a C, <laughs> not the same thing. Come on now. Anyway, I, so I thought that was a good debate. I, I enjoyed that, was a that. Good discussion.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of these things I'm still working through, what I really think. I have
0: all the answers, bro.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I just need to listen to you more, I guess. Um, in my in my role as wife, I need to listen to you more. But <laughs> listen, um, you got to be
0: subservient, okay? This is how this works.
1: I appreciated his willingness to sort of engage in real time with the arguments that you were making, in particular, and you know, and acknowledge. especially on the Trump front, I do have to think, you know, if this dude's going through trial after trial and facing the possibility of prison time. Even though I do, as of right now, he is actually in a stronger position electorally than he was at this time in 2016 or 2020. I just can't wrap my head around American people electing a guy who literally might be in prison.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix of the Republican insanity mixed with Democrats, at least early on in Biden's term. They were delivering what I'd call the bare minimum. Yeah. You know, we do have this explosion of manufacturing jobs. We do have, you know, laws we could point to where it's like this empirically is helping people and we know it's helping people. This is
1: where I disagree with you because I just don't think that the manufacturing jobs that have been created so far are nearly enough to make up for the gaping hole that was created by rolling back all the pandemic era programs. You know, I I look at this Actually, no,
0: I don't disagree with you. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. All I'm saying it's good for what it's worth.
1: Sure. It's better than not doing it. But the experience of most people over the course of the Biden administration has been their economic situation getting worse and worse because of the, you know, they're supposed to do Build Back Better. They were supposed to make some of these social safety net pieces permanent. They didn't do that for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, so then they just went about the program of, all right, let's get rid of the eviction moratorium. Let's get rid of the child tax credits. Let's get rid of the, you know, let's restart student debt payments. And they're trying to do something on student debt cancellation. Which so far, has it worked out? So the reality for most people has been getting worse over the course of the administration. But
0: I think that the good things they did are heightened in the face of the Republicans. That's my point is like relative to. How insane the Republicans are right now, the elected Republicans and Trump and everything that he's doing. I think, relative to that, then all of a sudden the little bits and pieces feel like, oh my God, that's actually like way better than we'd get from the person who's under 91 criminal charges. I think it's more
1: about the 91 criminal charges than it is the like, and I think it's about Roe v. Wade too. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I
0: I think we almost fully agree that I, so the Roe v. Wade thing is still to this day. Haunting the Republican Party. Oh, yeah. I mean, in every in the special elections, you shared an article with me that I covered on this, uh, Democrats have overperformed by 10 percentage points in all the special elections. Which And, and why? Well, one of the big things this is the Roe versus White thing. And again, I think the other thing is Trump is an albatross around the neck of the Republicans in the sense that he's got the strongest base support. Nobody denies that. But it's like all of the normies and the moderates and the center-right people. Yeah. You know, like those people are like, ugh.
1: There's a poll that just came out that said 53% of Americans said they 100% would not support Trump. 53%. Yeah, That's and the that majority. Hurts. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, he won in 2016 without a majority. So it could be done again um, between the electoral college, vicissitudes of the electoral college, and also, you know, Cornell West and potentially Joe Manchin running third party efforts. You can theoretically win with less than 50%. But when you have more than a majority of America dead set against you from the beginning, that is going to be a challenge, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I should be clear, and the longtime viewers know this, like, I was, I was singing a totally different tune back in 2015 and 2016. I was saying, like, no, this guy's a real threat. When everybody was laughing at him and saying it's possible, yeah. and I was like, no, he's a real threat. And his particular strengths uh go right after Hillary's weaknesses mm-hmm. and here are the arguments he's gonna make and they're gonna land. And effectively he won in twenty fifteen and 20, 20- in twenty twenty I predicted a Biden win. I-, I overestimated the amount of support he'd get, which means Trump still overperformed the polls, but Biden yeah. ended up winning. But I got those two elections right. Well, in twenty sixteen is a little more complicated. I was saying Trump could win, but like a day before when I had to predict, I said yeah. Hillary's gonna eat it out with like yeah. 270-some-odd vote. I mean, everybody thought that
1: was Everybody <laughs> thought that, yeah. So I, I don't want to oversell how
0: right I was. I'm just yeah. saying, like, in the trends leading up to it, I said Trump's a real candidate, 2016, 2020. I thought Biden would win. This time around, I think I'm more uh, obnoxious and arrogant and loud about it and and confident in what I'm saying that I really, really think that he is the worst candidate. for I mean, you could put literal, like, Nikki Haley up there who has the yeah. personality of watching paint dry? Yeah. And she, I think, would be a favorite against Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you're probably right that he's the weakest candidate that they could run. But I don't have as much confidence of as you that it's like I don't think it's a lock that Biden will beat him. And there's a lot I can happen. I not say lock. Lock is too him. strong. Okay. But
0: I'll say I, I would say seventy thirty. Okay. Which is you know when you're playing poker, I'd always take those odds going in. But the thirty wins sometimes. I'm gonna go. Right? Sixty-five, thirty-five. Sixty-five, thirty-five. So here's a good <laughs> one for you. What are the chances Desantis wins the nomination?
1: <laughs> I knew it. I knew it the same
0: <laughs> what about Vivek?
1: I would give Vivek like a like a one percent chance. Only one? I just. will give him a seven. I, Vivek, you got really? a seven
0: percent chance. I, I really book.
1: think. I just think Trump's got it. I just. I. I can't. Maybe something crazy will happen. What if
0: he has a heart attack and dies? Okay, then he still wins.
1: <laughs> he <would> still <laughs> Depends win. on when <laughs> and what
0: happens. Um, he would win from the grave. It'd be but hilarious. I, I
1: do think if Trump was out of it, I do actually think Vivek would probably win. I do think he had. Really? Yeah. I feel like he's got like a lot of the ethos of the base kind of tapped into it more than the others. He's definitely got the most mo- momentum right now. Although I did see a thing where they did an analysis of his polling and in polls that are all online, he does way better than traditional polls. Right, yeah. He falls off. So some of it may be a little bit distorted by, like, the online world versus the real world. It's hard to say.
0: So I view uh, Vivek a little differently than you. Yeah. I view Vivek sort of like when, uh, when Ben Carson was randomly leading for one week in the primary he was in, or when Herman Cain was randomly leading one week when he was in the primary he was in or when even, like, Carly Fiorina led for three and a half seconds. Yeah. I sort of view Vivek's, like, surge into, like, third place in some polls more along those lines. I,
1: I actually don't. I, I actually think he has more political talent and savvy than any of those individuals you just mentioned.
0: See, I just think he's Republican Pete Buttigieg. That's how I view him. He <laughs> Pete
1: me Buttigieg in. did pretty well.
0: He did do pretty well, but <laughs> it wasn't, you know, he wasn't really scaring for the W, you know what I mean?
1: Depends on what network you were listening to. And if you, t- well, that's
0: a good question. See, if you take out Biden from that race, I think Bernie wins easy. I don't think Pete Buttigieg overtakes Biden.
1: Yeah, but Pete's probably two. Pete's probably what? Comes in second.
0: Yeah, 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 I think that's probably true. Yeah. I and mean, who was going to overtake him? Elizabeth Warren? Kamala Harris? Amy Cl- Cloudboot Jar? <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember who else was in that race. Oh,
1: it's, there were so many. I actually went back and looked at it. Kim Ryan ran.
0: Kirsten Gillibrand ran. John Delaney. Corey remember that? Ran.
1: Yeah, of course. John Delaney. Delaniak. Yeah. Delaney-ac. We interviewed him a bunch of times that were arising. Because My- he would go on anywhere, anytime. Remember Martin attention.
0: O'Malley back in 2015, 2016? Oh, that was
1: such a sad campaign. You had
0: Bernie being Bernie, Hillary being Hillary, and then Martin O'Malley up there like, I am Mr. Politician Man. I just I remember I think he we went on do the view things. and he like
1: played the guitar like a Taylor <laughs> Swift song or something. That's the remember bet on my stork the last race. Bet on my stork. Bet on O'Rourke. Bet on my
0: phone. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> we had a whole meme about that where it was like him holding money and there was like a stork and he was betting on a stork because his name is Bet on
1: Ryan my stork. ran. I, there are people that were still forgetting even with this. Oh, uh, Michael Bennett. Colorado, oh remember? Oh,
0: oh, oh, he has like the frat boy voice, bro.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Like, here's what I, I to, here's like totally what we should do with the country Scoob. He sounded like Shaggy from Scooby Doo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, you got some Michael Bloomberg, of course. Oh, oh, Bloomberg. Tom Steyer. Yes. Deval Patrick. Remember
0: when Tom Steyer at the end of when Tom Steyer like dropped out of the campaign? He put all of his money into like South Carolina or something, mm-hmm. and then he lost there. And then at the end, he was like dancing with Juvenile on stage to back that ass up.
1: (laughs) I mean, Bill de Blasio, Seth Moulton. Getty Man, Bill de Blasio. Seth Moulton, I forgot about him. Steve Bullock.
0: He's a G.I. Joe, Seth Moulton. Look at his face. John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper. We had a whole thing about him because his name sounds like a cereal box, so we put his face on a cereal box and it's called a Hickenlooper's.
1: (laughs) Swalwell, remember that?
0: Eric Swalwell, William
1: Castro was in there. Boy, some classics. But we're forgetting about the most important person, which was Mike Ravel, R.I.P.
0: Yes, rest in peace to the goat, Mike mm-hmm. Ravel. Absolutely. Yeah. Good guy. So, all right, anyway, anyway. We're, we're just babbling now. <laughs> nice trip down memory lane with all you. Uh, if you enjoy us babbling about random elections, do us a big favor. Sign up on Substack. Um, if you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every debate and interview, and you get it a day early. Everybody else can sign up on Substack for free, and then you get it a day later, the, the free audio version of the podcast. And that's all we got for you guys. Remember, we don't talk to any uh, advertisers or anything like that. We don't do any ad reads, so we build it through small-dollar donations. So we d- deeply appreciate any support if you guys like what we do here. And with that being said, we will see you next week. Peace.